What's going on with dance and stuff? What's happening with dance and things? What's going on? What's happening? What's going on with dance and stuff? I pushed it. I also pushed it. Push the button. Don't push the button. Flip the station. Change the channel. Do you know what that is? It sounds Switch like a the Madonna station, song. change the channel. It, it, it is a Madonna song. <laughs> I was literally just reading some amazing patches, passages about Madonna that I think you would love that Tommy DeFrance wrote. Oh, oh, I want to. Oh, I want to. Uh, they might make you laugh or sad, but basically it was like what is appropriation and approximation? And he was like, you know, in, in some instances, people take from queer black culture and they do so in a way that is like really um, slight as with Madonna. <laughs> push the button. Don't push the button. Switch the station. Change the channel. I, I'll never forget being in some uh like what was it called the slide there was it was called the marquee and the slide and um the marquee was the ups upstairs kind of like club where there'd be some acts like remember seeing taylor mack perform there etc this is all pre 9-11 and the slide was like this downstairs oh wait no it's i don't remember when it is and downstairs (laughs) (laughs) is next door was the slide which was like underwear parties and um it was, uh, there was some like part, you know, some club night and, um, American life had come out and we're all dancing and American life comes on. And we, everyone, I remember watching all of these Queens. We just stopped when she started rapping and we were like, I can't believe it. We were like, change it, change the music. Yeah, I mean, that would really, that's stunning. It's it's a shock. It was, it was a shock. It was, um, I'm drinking a soy latte. I get a double shotte. It courses through my bate. I mean, oh my God. God. Her like flagrant and sort of unembarrassed use and appropriation is, it's shocking. It shows no self-awareness. She is absolutely American. Um, speaking of that, <laughs> speaking of that, um, I am back in Brooklyn, which means I am now on Lenape uh, land. And um, I was when I was reading about what what was Greenpoint like before it was uh, overtaken, and um, it was used uh, because it was so swampy. There wasn't um, as much living here, but there was a lot of, um, well, one big thing was I'll, I'll be here for a bit, so I'll, I'll save them. But one was oysters and, uh, and gifts of oyster shells, uh, which I can't imagine what's in the, uh, what is in the East river now, especially because it was a, it was a fishing, it was fishing in the, but also, but also there was, I mean, this, where Greenpoint is in terms of like this land here that was islandy, there was deer and things to hunt as well on the land. But um, at what Greenpoint is now, which is still, you know, kind of a swamp next to um, oh, that, <laughs> that where there was that huge toxic spill, the Newtown Creek, you know, I'm, I'm by that where it's, you know, you can't even get in the water with that because at the bottom of it is just sludge, sludge of death. Isn't it remarkable when you think about I forget that New York, the city itself, is really like there's so much water and yet none of it can really be used for fun in the way that, Mm -mm. you know, when you're in Copenhagen, you can literally just sort of jump off the street into Mm -hmm. the 
<clears throat> water because actually no, clean. Girl. No. no, girl. We don't. Do we don't have that. That's not. That's not New York. Certainly not this country. Um, as uh, you had that post of different countries and where they're at with their COVID cases. Oh yeah. Whereas we were like fifty something a day. What was that? I missed my window of fifty thousand. I missed my window of opportunity to become Canadian because I, in the, at the end of the day, like. I am American and I want to be American, but I, I want a better America. And I'm, I'm feeling really energized because I just came from Tommy's Tommy DeFrance's class. So like all so my, I can't wait to have him on. Oh my God. It was so intense, but all my mind is just so forward thinking right now. I'm just want to move forward. I want everybody to, to think away from and forward and towards something better. I love this. I I love. I mean, Reed. Now we're going to be unstoppable. Oh, you and I. Now it's just yes. It's gonna. <laughs> it's, it's gonna be. It's gonna. It's. I'm gonna be like this thing's bothering me, and you're gonna be like me too. Well, I don't like. Yes, things bother me, but I also. I I feel energized. Energized towards solutions and thinking. Yes. Thinking towards new models. You know. Right. I, and today at the end of class, I was like, because we kept talking about queerness and queering off the line mm-hmm. and moving forward and forward and, and utopias and how do we hope towards something like a utopia. And I was like, Tommy, are there, can, can we imagine models or see existing models in our own universe, which is dance that actually employ this forward thought and you know, outside of what we're doing right now in a master's program. And because like, you know, in this program, I've been hearing a lot of people's stories and to hear another person's experience of being at parts and being like, wow, I felt so oppressed. You know, I was like, wow, is mm. is anything actually moving towards being more than or better than or more progressive? It's right. It's hard. And are you reading Cruising for Utopia? Yes. Yes. Great. And so in this, and what was Tommy's response to your query about is, can we, are, are what are the, the examples happening now? He didn't uh, give me was any. Was there a response? He, out, right. No, he didn't give me examples, but he was like, that's, you have chosen to be in this place to be, he's like, there's many, many excellent artists who don't have an MFA. It's not, it's not something that makes you into or that is a qualifier for being a good artist. He was like, you're here because you feel an imperative to think of a place where all of us can go, like where we can mobilize as a group, because we're not going to do this alone. It's not possible. Like the whole, this whole mode of thought is about mobilizing groups or being a part of a group and hoping that our group, our community and all of our communities can mobilize and move forward. So I'm, I'm only, just a small part of this small group in hopes of putting out ideas that can bring people together. That's what we're going to do, Jack. That's how you and I are going to do better. I mean, that is, that is the, the notion that we are not interdependent has certainly been completely obliterated by this pandemic. And I made people wake up to that. I have to say it's really, you know, I, I, I wanted to, um, get things for uh, the house for Parker to eat and, you know, being in a grocery store upstate with like two people, younger people, 
just not not only not wearing masks, but running through the aisles like laughing. Oh wow! I was like, oh wow! And I and then I I had to drop off something at UPS, and this woman came in. This older woman came in, and she like slammed her box down. She's like, I have a mask in the car. I just forgot about it. I couldn't. I just couldn't deal with it. Whoa! And I was like, this is uh, the extreme evolution of egomaniacal capitalism, which we are, which can now not be, you can't argue that it is not totally tied to white supremacy. And uh, it's how do we undo this whole structure? And, but that you are correct, we can't do it alone. And we are in these small groups. And you think of dance and where dance falls and the economic ladder and therefore it's sort of power ladder. Um, And but, you know, we're also in this time where of a massive unemployment that maybe is a time where the arts can reach people and affect and, and infect, hopefully, through the Internet. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, the, the idea of the utopian future and, and what do you – I highly uh, – Jose has some really – excellent lectures that you you're, can watch on YouTube if you you're also now deceased want to. friend Jose Munoz. <laughs> Jose Munoz, yes. Um, but at any rate, I'm still in California on the Tongva land, and I don't have any interesting anecdotes this week, but I will. Um, and I'm still in school. I went to a social distancing wedding a few weeks ago that I forgot to talk about. It looks insane. And... Um, I, I mean, it was also, you know, it was movement towards the future based on the present we're living in. It's like, yes, you can go to a wedding. You just have to wear a mask and ask to be 10 people. Um, and, uh, what else, Jack? It's been things. I like school. I'm glad to be in school. School will end in a few weeks. And then what? I'll come back to New York and then I'll, you know, maybe we'll see each other. We we might. I'm. I think I'm gonna uh, try and take a social distance, uh, river walk with Paige, who I really missed, and with Neil. And it's interesting. Brooklyn is. I feel really good to be here. Um, it's uh, it's home. New York is home. No matter the complaints that I can have enumerate about New York, I I really. Do you love this place? And um, are all your plants dead? Are they okay? Any plants survive? Uh, they're mainly they're mainly dead. It didn't it didn't yeah, really it I'm didn't scared. really I'm scared. Didn't really work out. But um, Jeremy is pruning some of them back, and um, I'm sure they will come together. And uh, I'm I'm really excited for part two of our conversation. Oh, yes, um, yes. Today? I've been, I've, I've been looking forward to this for our listeners for some time. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I feel that it, it opens up um, a much-needed dialogue, and um, it is this thing of what, what are we doing, how, how can we, and, um, and where can our, our emotional resonance be what guides us. Yeah, and I just want to point towards a thing that I say in this episode, I had a little listen and I, I said something in the context of a really tricky conversation about bodies that in listening to it, I just want to clarify or correct or move myself towards more 
uh, forward-thinking language because it, at a moment in talking about dance and feet, I used the phrase beautiful feet. And I just want to say like, yes, it's very commonplace that we refer to a certain kind of foot as beautiful, but it's not, beautiful is not the right qualifier for what I'm talking about. And I think we all know that. Um, I, I, I would just hope for myself moving forward to use more specificity in speaking about such a thing. But anyways, you'll hear it when it comes and you'll know what I mean. Yes. Well, and also that's the, the joy of reading is getting more adjectives and, um, and also how fun to, it's, it is exciting. May people feel more excited to question their beliefs. I mean, this is for me has always been the point of therapy. If you, as someone who, as anyone who's heard this podcast knows, it's like I've been in it for a long time. But the point of therapy analysis, some sort of dialoguing, is to question the way you think about things and the way you believe them to be, because that's not true. Right. And uh, and the more you pick that apart, of course, that can feel kind of vertiginous because it's like, well, where's the center? Well, there isn't one. There's no ground. You know, it is this thing of uh, we we tell stories and and things, but the the truths are about. I would say at this point, like, how can we realize that we are interdependent or interconnected and be kind with that? Otherwise, it is a decision against it. I don't seek out guided therapy with people, but I do know that in my life through through conscious reflection, be it journal, journaling or school, those are periods of my life where I, I feel better. I feel more yeah. stable because there is reflecting back and a hearing of one's voice and then a pondering of why am I saying these things? And in, in seeing and hearing yourself, you can move forward. Yeah. And it can also, and when you're with a cohort, yes, that also helps mirror, oh, I want to go more this way, or I want to go away from that. Yes. Like that, that doesn't hit my tuning fork. Right. You know? And I, I think that that is, uh, that's, I don't know. I'm excited for you. So you guys, something that I love. Be cool. Uh, stay in school. <laughs> yeah. Stay in school. <laughs> teach school. Um, read. Or, you know, get an analyst. Yeah. Um, put yourself in an and, educative uh, environment. Is that a word? Sure. Okay. <laughs> sure. Why not? Sure. Why not? You're in a master's. I teach educative. I have been seeing it's a, just an lot, educative a moment. lot of made up words. So quite frankly, make up words. I'm about to go to a writing workshop in four minutes. So I'm going to make up some more words. And, um, I mean, you guys, enjoy. It's so I, great. I, You're going to love it. Enjoy this en- interview. Enjoy today's episode. We won't be here for an outro. So rate, view, subscribe, listen, do all the things. Send out this episode to everyone. It's a must hear episode. We, we loves you. We loves you. Well, for any of our listeners who are starting to wonder why why we've chosen these people to have this particular conversation around Cunningham, it's not an accident that everybody happens to be a black man. And in the history of Cunningham, these happen to be the three sort of sole survivors. And the one person missing from this group is Ulysses Dove. And I was curious if the three of you had any thoughts about Ulysses or experience in knowing him. Well, I knew Ulysses. 
I didn't know him when he was in the company. He, there was a little gap. Right. He joined in 1970. Right. I, I, uh, I left in 68, and then Chase Robinson, who was a white boy from Florida, came in, mm-hmm. and he was absolutely the opposite proportions of me. He had a long trunk, like Merce. But I had known, you know, Ulysses in passing. And I thought, lucky son of a gun, he's the Merce's company, yay. Because I, so I was, at that point, I was invested in Merce's having a black man in the company. <laughs> I'd said president. Mm. And then when he said he was leaving, or I mean, he didn't say it to me, but I heard he was leaving. I thought, what? Is going, how could anyone leave Merce? Um, and going to Ailey of all people. And then I saw his work. Right. And I totally understood. Mm-hmm. So that was that. His work is brilliant. And completely the opposite. It is as intense emotionally as Merce's work is physically. Yeah. Gus, will you expand, expand a little bit on your feelings of disappointment around Ulysses going from Merce's company to Alvin Ailey's company? Well, I just felt that Dancing with Merce Cunningham was the pinnacle of achievement for a dancer because you were doing impossible things all the time and more and more impossible things and doing them because of the atmosphere that Merce generated in the company by you know, no visible means. He just said, let's try this. And you looked at it and you thought, hmm, now let's see. Physics would say, that can't be done. <laughs> and then we would do it. And we would do it. So, fuck physics. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that just um, was so inspiring. Uh, to be able to master things that other humans couldn't do. You know, that was exciting to me. And that was what I was all about. Mm-hmm. I was not interested in emotional life or an emotional subject matter or emotional, you know. And that's why, that's why Merce, Merce was a, the perfect vehicle for me, me to hero worship because mm-hmm. we we didn't talk and that that didn't change uh, but we danced to each other we danced at each other it was all kinetic our correspondence our um, communication and then I remember when when I was injured uh, we we didn't say anything you know, because we didn't know what to say. There was nothing to say. I couldn't dance. I couldn't speak to him in, in the language we both knew. Mm. And so, and then in your feeling of Ulysses going to Ailey mm-hmm. was... See, I wasn't a big fan of Ailey. Right. I thought he... I mean, I knew when he started, when the cover, when Revelations was done for six people. <laughs> <laughs> not six people. Right. It's done now. Um, and it meant something, but it was, it was all, it was very, he was very fresh out of, out of, uh, Horton then. And so you understood what all that was about. 
Then he either kept making that dance or make it, and he got more and more famous and in demand. And he made dances with the steps of the people he was working for. He made a piece for American Ballet Theater back in the day, which was a toe dance. <laughs> and I thought, why? Don't you have any style? You know, and then he and then he got the mm. world tour or whatever, mm. and he was anointed America's modern dance company through kind of no fault of doing or desire of his own. And I remember Carmen tells me these days, or she used to tell me, that he would call her up and say, "Carmen, I can't take it. I can't. I can't do this." And, anymore. and this is this is Carmen. You're talking about dance. Carmen de Lavalade. Carmen de Lavalade, the divine. Yeah, because she brought him to New York. Mm. She took him to his first dance class. Mm. It was the Delavalade Ailey Ensemble at one point. So, Gus, in your time, Ailey was not yet kind of anointed. Not until that world tour. Right. The State Department tour. Right. And do you know what year? What, what year was that, Gus? Don't ask. <laughs> <laughs> was it early 60s? Something like that, or mid sixties, because like in my time, Ailey was for a lot of black people. Ailey was the pinnacle of excellence, right? For all people, yes. Yeah, um, and I, I also didn't want to go there. I think I was just maybe a little too kind of counterculture for that, and it felt a little bit cheesy to me. Thank you. That's but, exactly the word. Yeah, but but Ulysses choreography for that company was amazing and I I never got to meet him. I was sad to not ever know him. He was already gone from this world when I got there. But I did um I was cast as him. Oh. What piece? In second in a Cunningham piece, we did a reconstruction of second hand. And I remember being cast as him and I was like, okay, one black man to another. This is a little bit typecasting, but I was also really actually honored because I just was like, Ulysses Dove, oh my God. So that was that was my experience of knowing him was through the movement that he did. And at any given point in time, whether, you know, none of you overlap during your experience in the company. So for each of you, you were always the only black man in the Merce Cunningham company. And did that give you a sense of feeling special in some way or feeling um, more visible. Okay, I still want to speak to this. <laughs> so, you know, I mentioned that before I uh, danced with Mercer, I danced with David Gordon. And the interesting thing about that company at the time, it was a, uh, an ensemble of nine dancers, three of whom were black. So a third of the company. Um, it was... Um, Dean Moss, uh, Cynthia Oliver, and myself, right? Amazing company. So one of the pieces in the repertory was this dance called My Folks, which was David's love letter to his family and his Jewish upbringing. And it's done to klezmer music. It was a fabulous dance. And smack in the middle of it, I have this duet with Dean Moss where we were doing these mazurka steps around each other, circling around each other. And every single time I round the corner... I catch his eye and like, I, I don't know, it was just automatic and 
I couldn't control it, but my face would just break out in the hugest smile. And I was so happy and I didn't quite know what was going on. And then a while later, it's like, no, you feel like you're dancing with your brother on this stage. And, and it was always so poignant to me and I, and I loved it. Um, and so when I got into Mercy's company, there's a part of me, um, yeah, I felt, I, I felt a little special, but it was more about really doing the work. Um, but, you know, as the only black person in the company, you know, eventually I saw that my face or my body image was on a lot of the publicity. So, you know, I was out there mm. in a way. And, you know, one of the things about Moses approach to uh, getting company members is that it's always by attraction and never by outreach. Right. And I think this is really key. He never went into inner cities. He never, I mean, really hardly ever did anything, hardly ever held auditions. You just showed up at the studio and then eventually you two navigated together and then eventually you got into the company and you didn't. So, um, you know, but I was hoping that my presence in all of that publicity material, plus the fact that I was performing yearly at City Center, you know, yeah, I was the lone black dancer in the company, but I was really hoping that my presence would be sort of a magnet to slowly, little by little, attract more um, dancers of color to the studio. And, you know, it's sort of a side note. Um, at one point, sometime in the 90s, there was a reviewer who was um, trying to call out Merce on issues of homophobia. You know, why aren't there any same-sex couple duets? Um, and, and also race. And at the end of his, his uh, um, section on race, he said, he ended it with, um, and even Michael Cole, the company's lone dancer, looks white in retrospect. And, and I was like, what does that even mean? What does that mean? Yeah, what the what fuck does that mean? Does that mean? What is that? But here's the weird thing. Years later, I, I wonder if there wasn't a little bit of truth to that only because there weren't that many, you know, people of color really arriving at the studio. Um, so in my time, you know, and there, 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 I think there are multiple things, there are, there are multiple factors that, that lead to that. In fact, I think there are four things. One, when I said, you know, attraction versus um, outreach. Um, I think the second thing is something um, really basic to Merce's aesthetic. And all these things, most of them, have nothing to do with Merce as a person, race or not. But his aesthetic, the fact that um, dance and music are separate. Most people really don't have time for that, honestly. I mean, no, it's, it's, I'm dead serious. It's like Merce's, Merce's, um, he's not popular. He's never been popular. He's been revered. He's honored, but not popular. And so I think that that, you know, it turns off huge swaths of people in general. And then if you're going to look at black people or other people of color who, you know, um, make up smaller percentages of the population, that cuts that down a little bit more. Mm. Then I think, you know, Rashawn and Gus, you both sort of alluded to this. I think, um, and again, not a sociologist, but I think that um, there sort of is a difference between, you know, of the black dancers in New York who were there during my time, 
Um, I would say there's a difference between the uptown black dancer and the downtown black dancer. And one, and you know, the uptown dancer is like, you know, mainly the choreographers who sort of orbit the Ailey satellite or the Ailey sun and dancing to Harlem and anything having to do with ballet. And I think their numbers are more numerous. And then you have the dancers, black dancers who are dancers of color who, you know, um, gravitate towards uh, the downtown scene. And I'm going out on a limb here, but I want to say that at least of those black dancers, that those dancers are probably in general a little bit more comfortable in being in white spaces or can tolerate a little bit more readily the idea of being the only black person in mm. the room. Mm. Yeah. That's that's my contention. I, I don't know if I'm right or not. I think so yeah. Gus, you say you agree. I agree. I mean my my upbringing is mostly in a white mm. environment. Mm-hmm. You know, I was one of one of maybe three black families in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I went to a mostly white grammar school and a mostly white high school and then I went to MIT. Come on, yeah. six yeah. university. Sure. And then in theater, there were a couple of black people. But we all shared the fact that we weren't particularly comfortable around black people. Mm. We didn't share their values. We didn't share their... Uh, we, we had rhythm, <laughs> but we, we didn't have their <laughs> same references. You know, and I didn't feel, I didn't have a feeling about that. I wasn't, I didn't regret it. I didn't, uh, it didn't seem to be special. I mean, a lot of the situations I had been in around black people as I was growing up were not particularly comfortable because I didn't fit in. So that was fine. I didn't even understand what it meant to be black until I got to, or colored in those days, until I got to New York and started auditioning for, sh- for Broadway shows. After the the, uh, the, sh- the Broadway show that got me here, Donald McHale's show, mm-hmm. uh, I went to all those auditions and they would keep me until the very end and then tell me, your dancing is really good but we don't have a partner for you. Or the producers right. don't want to mix the show or some such. And all I took away from that was your dancing is really good. See, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't attuned to being black mm-hmm. and angry. And a lot of the black and angry work that I was seeing, I didn't relate to at all. Elio Pomari's work was just very black and very angry, or at least it was very angry. And that was not my preference or nor my experience. But Gus, you were also in the company during the civil rights movement. And there, you know, I, I'm curious about like what that felt like because, you know, especially touring with the company and you guys, didn't you go to some Southern states ever? Wow. Or like, what was that like? How did you feel singled out or not? We must have. Well, I know we were in Louisville, Kentucky, the Kentucky Derby. And I don't, maybe I was being protected by them, but I was not aware of any separation. 
I mean, I wasn't, it wasn't early enough that I would have to sleep at a different hotel. Any mm-hmm. of that crap. Uh, right. so I, and I wasn't particularly, uh, socially conscious about my, the difference in my culture or in my color. Because my culture was actually not black. Uh, I remember a friend of mine whom I reconnected with a thousand years later who was around in Boston when we were doing shows together, reminded me or informed me that we would often go to restaurants and coffee shops after rehearsals in Boston. And I had no recollection or even knowledge that it had happened, but she said she would sometimes have to reprimand the waitstaff because they were making snide remarks about me, because I was in there with, with a company of white people, and I didn't think anything about that. I didn't. I was aware of that. Do you think Merce was aware of it? Like, did Merce ever talk to you about race? No. Well, we didn't talk. <laughs> he gave me steps, and I. He probably would have talked to David about it if uh, there were any issues. Right. But no, there was no. You know, I mean, I have a secret, a secret uh, feeling that Merce Cunningham is, has some black in him. Some black in him? My Merce Cunningham, my Merce Cunningham puppet has a, kind of a wide nose and that frizzy hair. And I made his skin dark. His Merce's skin is kind of dark. I mean, he could have been black Irish, right? <laughs> I mean, sorry. <laughs> no, no comment. <laughs> And he didn't talk about it. No comment. (laughs) (laughs) Plus, he was all about rhythm. No, for Mercy, it was all about the dancing, the moving, the doing. He He said, we don't present, we do. And so that obviates a lot of of those kind of connotations that swirl around it. It's. I think it's interesting to hear you talk about this because I didn't know this, and I. Um, I think there's some overlap for me. I. Like I think it's it's true. There was no outreach. There was no. There was this position of like passivity. Like I'm here, you come to me, and and so that was played a huge part in why there weren't more people of color and zero women of color. Um, And I was going to say that when Reed brought that up in terms of you are the three and Ulysses with Ulysses in terms of the three black men, but it was like, there were no black women in the company ever. Right. Ever. Um, I mean, there were a few that maybe had mixed heritage in some way. Um, but certainly presented as white. Um, but I think, uh, I don't know. I, I think that, I think that Merce could have done more. I think that the whole foundation at that time throughout could have done more to like, to push him to value diversity and inclusion a little bit more, a lot more. Um, yeah. but I actually think it's a much larger, uh, it's a much larger issue. And I think you kind of alluded to it when you were talking Gus about education, access, culture, exposure in our country in general and in the field. And, mm-hmm. you know, for me as someone who was growing up in a 
lower middle class black neighborhood in the South, I was not exposed to these things. Like this was not something that I was even remotely aware of and had no, and didn't see myself in these spaces. Um, but I did experience, and also by the way, I, I am biracial, my mother is white. So I think there was always this um, openness towards a, a more white culture uh, for me. Um, but I think I, when I was younger, I experienced a lot of homophobia in the black community. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was really like almost life threatening, you know? And so I had to leave and I ended up going to this school where I was in a predominantly white space and I was exposed to these other ways of thinking. And in many ways, you know, I'm a, a product of that kind of indoctrination and sort of colonization, I guess. And so I think my own sort of preferences or roots from Black culture were sort of eclipsed in many ways by these other things that I was learning. And I was being told by people who were in these positions of power that what was good and what was bad and what to value, you know, and that Mm -hmm. over time, that does a thing, right? Um, And so I think that there's so many hurdles to just get yourself through the door of the Merce Cunningham Mm -hmm. studio. Sure. Right. And I, so, and when I was there, there were very few, there were a couple of women of, there are a few women of color that were, that would take class. And anytime I saw any black person, I definitely clocked it. And I definitely wanted to say like, you're like me, but of course, you know, we're all different. Um, (laughs) There were women, there were black women around, Mm -hmm. not very many, but there were a few. um, And there was, in, in, under, the, in the studio in the in the, in the studio school. in the okay, school yeah. right right yeah yeah and um there was a there was a, a black understudy woman um named lana seeley and she was there during my time and she was from barbados she was absolutely gorgeous and she and i know that merce really was sort of attracted to her like you could tell when someone new came into the studio and he was into them you knew um, so she was an understudy for a period of time. Um, she didn't end up getting hired. I don't, I can't speak to why, but, um, I find, I feel like oftentimes like it's so much about timing. Like if yeah. there's not a position open, the Merce Cunningham company was just so much about like filling a slot that's available. Yeah. And, and like you said, Michael, there were no auditions that like, it wasn't like that. So if you weren't, if you didn't happen to be there at the right moment, you weren't going to get in and they weren't going to prioritize issues of diversity over whatever kind of technical or like replacement of body types thing was going right. on. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, no, I, I actually really agree with you, Rashawn. And, and yet in retrospect, like, you know, so, Right. We talk about a lot about um, there never being a black woman in the company. But as we know, also, there, there were never more than one black person at the same time. And actually, we got close with that when I was in the company. Um, Mark Mann was hired as, um, as a rug, a repertory and study group member. And he, um, you know, I mean, he, he danced with everybody. He's a beautiful, brilliant dancer. And... Um, and so, 
you know, I mean, I think you sort of allude to this kind of thinking, Rashawn. Um, like, you know, he arrived at the studio, he became um, an understudy, and I sort of left him alone. I wanted to, like, actively, like, give him his space, um, you know, and to find his own way into the work or whatever. But simultaneously, I told you about my experience with Dean Moss. Inside, it was like going, ah, this has to happen. I have to have my Dean Moss moment on stage. And so, you know, I kind of like quelled that. And then at one point, I I don't know what, why I thought this, but I, I became a little bit nervous for him. And we went on tour. We were in Germany. And I went to the, um, the breakfast room in the morning, Frustukraum, I think it's pronounced. Anyway, um, <laughs> love that. Isn't that a great word? That's such a great word. Uh, totally. German has great words. <laughs> anyway, um, so I went to the director of the understudies and I said, hey, I don't know what you guys are thinking about Mark. I think it's amazing. And I'm wondering, would this be useful to you? Would this be useful to Merce? If once we get back from this tour, if I just, if I work with him a little bit, and he said to me, we just, we fired him on Friday. Don't waste your time. Wow. And it was really dismissive. And there was never an explanation why. And I sort of always like, you know, I mean, obviously, yes, you have to wait your time. But he was the kind of dancer, you know, he was medium built. He was really one of those dancers that could have replaced anybody, mm-hmm. I think. And I, I don't know what it was, and I'm dying to find out. And in just the same way, you know, I, I, we, we brought, you brought up Alana. I wasn't around teaching that much. I was, you know, teaching like one class every two months or something. But I met Lana, fell in love with her. She, she and I bonded over the fact that she's from Barbados. My um, grandparents were born in Barbados. Lovely, lovely woman. And, and I remember, like, feeling the same sort of, feeling of what happened when she was let go because you know going back to mark I well she was just to interject mm-hmm. she was let go the i think almost the entire group of understudies was let go at the same time they may have kept okay. one or two but it wasn't just her it was a whole group okay okay thank you for that yeah and just to to clarify a little bit about we keep saying this word rugs but it's the repertory understudy group for the merce cunningham dance company that is a feeder group into the company, like a, a training company. And oftentimes once you've done your time, like two or three years, they'll, they won't keep you any longer. Cause I think they, they feel an imperative to send you off into the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unless there's a costume that you can fit into. <laughs> <laughs> there, I, at some points there have been people who yeah. were, were at the right place at the right time. Yeah. I mean, the thing that is that one can see in terms of the work from Cunningham and, and, and it was, it was interesting in terms, uh, Gus, of hearing you talk about, uh, your confusion of why is Ulysses going to go with Ailey? And it's so emotional. And, and then you also is talking about the emotional content or the psychological content and that within that emotive content in that psychological content, there is going to be some, uh, perhaps a view of the socio-political, which, uh, Rashawn, you said you, there was no discussion of that when you were there. No. And I think that is something that one really sees in the, in the work, that it is, it is yeah. just about the doing. But inside of that, you know, there is this thing, and it came up when um, with 100 solos, 
because it was the first time that I had seen the work, which really was a company, had employed many people. And it was the first time it looked anything like the world, or just to get specific, where it's placed, which is New York. And, you know, Reed and I have talked about this with New York City Ballet, and it's something that I also is true with a New York-based company. It's I mean, I, I, Michael, you and I don't really know each other, but Gus, um, I know Gus and Rashawn. It's like I came, I came out of Graham, and Martha did that. There, there, that company oh, was yes, yeah. had was diverse, and I was always, I have always felt confused about that with the Cunningham Company, mm-hmm. which was a company mm-hmm. and did have a lot of funding, and maybe wasn't popular, but like Martha wasn't popular. If we want to talk about popular, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, contemporary dance en general is not. Um, you know, it's really, and I'd also say like ballet, if it's a story ballet is, but if you took like a black and white to the black and white ballet from Balanchine, Mm -hmm. like I'm thinking of someone seeing a Stravinsky violin concerto in Ohio. Yeah. Them being like, or moves, my God, Robbins was very popular, but take moves, even in New York, people are like, there's no music. (laughs) So... But I think there's something <laughs> inside of that, of that this is this huge, it was really a monolith though. Cunningham is. Yeah. Famous. Yeah. A famous company of a, and a famous uh, choreographer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Gus, you kind of spoke to this directly in um, Lee's and Maya's film, If the Dancer Dances. Um, it was really interesting to hear you talk about that. I don't know if you want to kind of repeat that here why you thought he didn't have black women or women of color i well i think because he didn't see them he didn't see the image in a black dancer a black woman dancer that fit his ideal of what a, a dancer should look like see if he had if he'd lasted a little longer he would have seen that all over him i mean from, from Misty on down, because right. there's something, first of all, about the black build that is less articulate joint-wise than the Caucasian frame. So black people who are black-black don't have that kind of, those, those kinds of feet. Because they're not very practical in the jungle. In, in, the, in indigenous places, you need to have the whole foot on the ground at once to save your life. You know, I learned that when I went and taught it in Tanzania for a month. Um, you don't go up because you'll just break all your bones. So that, that is a, is a, uh, an, uh, uh, the, the, the articulation, the more articulated black bodies which look whiter in their conformation are the, are a com, a, a combination a blend of various races and that's well what I, I just i i want to i don't know that i agree with i don't think i agree with that um i think i mean I just want to say, just interject quickly. It's real. It's super complicated, and I've I've read a, a, um, some of your interviews from the Black Dancing Body, Gus, where many mm-hmm. people speak to this topic of like, what is 
physically the black dancing body. And though there are ideas around that, that create a kind of specificity in terms of the athletic build and the shape of foot or shape, there's just now too many examples of black, black people, as you said, who defy that, who have great amplitude of limb and beauty of foot, et cetera. So it's not, maybe it's not what Merce was seeing, but certainly in his lifetime, that was disproved. Yes, I I don't. Yeah. And I don't think it's about physiology uh, or genetics. I think it is about, again, education, access, exposure. And I think a lot of you know, a lot of people don't have that kind of training that West that comes from the Western canon, you know, they're not, they don't have the resources to, um, to train every day and to develop their bodies in this particular mode, this particular ideal that like values, flexibility and a straight leg and a super pointed foot, you know, so I don't... A hyperextended leg. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's really, it's yeah. like not even, it's... I agree that it's that Merce was exposed to that not being true in Merce's lifetime mm-hmm. and early enough mm-hmm. that I'm, I, I am perplexed at uh, why there wasn't more change. I mean, this also not to, I I'm just also going to guess here about people's orientation, but also there is something Michael to this review that you bring up in terms of mm-hmm. queerness and race mm-hmm. and, you know, and what was, and I, I'm not, I don't want to actually take too much time in this because this is a discussion about race within the Cunningham company um, but when I was uh, doing the, I was an AIDS oral history fellow through New York Public Library this past year, Jerome uh, Robbins, and there was this thing that Arnie Zane said that I that I I also just wanted to throw out here, and and because I am curious about this, in Arnie's interview, uh, Arnie says our younger generation coming up has a real sense of sexual freedom. I realized when I went and saw Merce this year, and Merce comes out at the end of this new work, and there are four women, and he partners one, two, three, four. And I know Merce, and Merce is a homosexual man, and I'm so put off by the dance world that I come from, the passing, the way people are constantly trying to pass in a heterosexualized way, the way we continue to act out the dreams of the lifestyle which we ourselves don't live, and a thing that, as a gay man, this has always left a bad taste in my mouth, when I see people of our profession who are supposed to be giants, the Alvin Ailey's, the Merce Cunningham's, I just have a real deep-seated anger and resentment that my world is changing too slowly. Yeah, I know that people come from another era, another time. It's too late. It's too late. I'm very angry. We are living in one of the most conservative periods of time in American political history. What year was that, Jack? Do you know? I can't remember the exact year. But in 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 the in the eighties, yes. I mean, this is well. He's talking. This is Reagan. But eighties, so, okay. okay. And this interview is this mm-hmm. interview is being conducted. Arnie is positive and the culture wars are happening Mm -hmm. and you know here we are we have this other plague and we are in definitely a very conservative time i think i want i just wanted to posit that quote from arnie in there um about uh 
really living the dream of people who we aren't in their dream. And what does that, and cause I, I'm, I'm so interested about that with Merce mm-hmm. who was a gay man and yet has this presents this other thing mm-hmm. on stage. And I can only see that working its way across the whole thing mm-hmm. then. Yeah. I mean, I think we like to think of him as this super radical, right? But in actuality, he was extremely conservative and and rigid. And, you know, I think that may have had something to do with the fact that he wasn't accepted into whatever establishment he considered to be the establishment at his time and felt that he needed to make certain compromises about issues around gender um, and sexuality. But, and, you know, there, there is evidence of his evolution on these issues, but it just wasn't enough, you know, and there just aren't, there's no real good excuse for it. So I just, I think the question now is like, what matters about this work and what of it can we take from it? If anything, like, is it, can we actually pick it apart and and glean things from it that are valuable while still acknowledging this super glaring problem? Yeah, I watching the the Night of a Hundred Solos answered all those questions for me because I was seeing a rainbow of, of dancers doing Mercer's work the way it was meant to be done. Part of that is evolutionary, part of it is cultural, but it has nothing to do with the physiognomy of, of bodies of different races. It has to do as much with culture. I mean, I've seen the evolution of of articulation over the 60 years I've been doing this. And it's really very different. People had not begun to to merge racially uh, to the extent that that happens now. So bodies were different. And the interests of the different bodies were different. So some bodies I guess black bodies, Ailey bodies, were interested in passion rather than line. So their 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 cultural interests aligned with their physical abilities. And when you strip away the cultural, emotional content and are left purely with the design, that's much anything. It's about the, mo- the movement, motion, and the physical possibilities. And he expanded the range of physical possibilities enormously, which is why his movement is so vast, his vocabulary is so vast, his repertory is so vast. And now more and more people can do it the way it was meant to be done, which is exciting to me. And I think that's the value of it now, because you can wear it, and it make it will fit you, and it will say, in air quotes, whatever you you need it to say. That is more than just doing it. 
I mean, it, part of just doing it in a different shape, colored body says something different already. <laughs> Michael? Oh, I, no, I, I, I am really, I'm, I'm in such a listening mode. I'm taking it all in, you know, so yeah, please see, continue. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I'll just comment on what Gus was saying about that experience of 100 solos and seeing the movement of Cunningham sort of recontextualized. And I think it acted both as a way of acknowledging the problematic past, whatever that may be, and also like opening a door to a future for what this form can mean to young bodies who are finding interest in it. And I'm so grateful that we're having this conversation and I'm, I was shocked to know that it had not happened before. So I know there are young people asking this question, like, why should I care about Cunningham? Like, what did he try to offer me in his own lifetime? But we can't ask him that question, unfortunately. What we have, what we do have is you as a, as a, resource to try to open up some of those questions for us. Well, and I do deal with this issue all the time. I mean, you know, as someone who did the work and then left and tried to, you know, have been doing my own work for the last 10 years, which is, I think, very different from his, but I still teach, I still teach the technique. Um, and I teach it in lots of different ways and different modes and different spaces. And, I do feel that there is value to it, um, you know, for me, and I'm not objective, obviously, because I, I, I was a part of this legacy. I contributed to this thing. And, um, but for me, it was extremely transformative and it was a lifeline. Um, and it taught me a lot about my, myself and my body and my relationship to space and the environment. And it, gave me a lot of confidence and, you know, the, I, there's so many things, positive, positive things that I can say about it, but I still think that it's important to like, when I'm teaching it and I work with a lot of young people, it's important to contextualize it, mm -hmm. you know, and to, mm -hmm. and to say, to tell my story about it, you know, because yes. I think that it's like the subjective personal narratives are the things that get lost, but really they're a part of it. Like we, yeah. we contributed to this and I feel like that silent, those years of silencing, like we just have to like rip that off and really talk about like how we got there and, and, and what it has done for us. And, I, I think that when I when I do that with people, it 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 sort of opens a door, and you know, it's sort of saying like, no, there's no company, there's no real reason for you to do this other than like you're being told you have to do it, but but there's a lot that it can bring to your life, and mm -hmm. it can affect any kind of dancing that you want to do, it's going to give you tools and skills to, to be better at that. It's not that you have to do this work, but like, I think that it's more important for us to be open to these experiences and to these, there, there are things to glean from this. Um, and I, I'm not like, I don't practice like cancel culture. I, that's not who I am. I'm more someone who's interested in like, oh, that was fucked up. Like, let's go look at that <laughs> and figure out like how, what I can use or how I can recontextualize or how I can 
do this work while also having a critical perspective on it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that it's been really helpful that the trust, you know, since Merce's death has really tried to change that and has put in a lot of work to make this work available and accessible to people. I mean, all of the programs, the, uh, the workshops are completely free or you, in many cases, you get paid to do workshops. Um, the classes are some of the cheapest classes you can take in the city right now. Um, mm-hmm. I see more and more people of color in those classes and in those workshops. And, you know, I just, I think it is changing. And of course, there's always like way, 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 way much more work to do. Um, but I think it's important to separate and distinguish between like who who Merce Cunningham the man was and who the company was and who the what the foundation was and what the school was and what the trust is like those are all actually really different entities mm-hmm. with different perspectives on this work that actually had quite a range um so yeah as well as the work itself I mean, I feel the work itself is exactly, especially considering how he worked is so its own thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's at the same time, I, I'm going to like say, and I don't agree with myself in that because I really <laughs> believe that everything one does, does come out there. You know, you're the filter, even yeah. if it's coming from some divine source, it's still yeah. coming through whatever your filter is. Yeah. I, you know, and the thing about cancel culture, which is interesting to bring that up, Rashawn, is, you know, I think that downtown, or for those of us who have this other, maybe for, maybe those of us who've read Judith Butler are going to be more open to cancel culture. Mm-hmm. Whereas uptown people aren't going to do that as much with someone like Balanchine. So if I look at Balanchine and Cunningham, it's like I can think how many people downtown would like not only cancel Balanchine, but also cancel Cunningham. Yeah. But no one uptown is going to do that. And mm-hmm. that that division then can negate a whole, uh, a whole thing that could be useful and that people have investments in and that people like yourselves have contributed to. Mm-hmm. And then that negates that. Yeah. Right. And I, I'm a person who's sort of been situated on the periphery of this Cunningham universe. And I, you know, the vernacular came into my life in the nineties when I was in college and I've, dipped in and out of it over the course of many years. But speaking to what Gus said and in describing it as, you know, a radical method, it it is that, and it continues to be that even today. So for young people who, who don't connect to dance in an emotive way, who don't connect to dance in a, in a, in a more con- traditional kind of way to discover Cunningham and to come into the, the, the technique of it and to learn about the the methods and the repertoire can be such a window into someone's soul that doesn't otherwise connect to dance. So I really value many of the many aspects of what Merce made and what he did. So I think the having access to the ideas and the work is can be important to so many people. His technique is comparable to ballet technique in that it's a real technique, not just a style. And it teaches you to play 
the instrument in every way the instrument can be played. Whatever the instrument looks like, whatever shape the instrument is in, whatever its uh, natural propensities are, it teaches you how to access all the possibilities. And that is absolutely useful, whatever you decide to, however you decide to use that, uh, that language that you have learned. You can say whatever you want with it. I, I just want to, you know, underscore what you're saying, Gus. Um, you know, I taught for a number of years after leaving the company and I was teaching at Columbia College Chicago. And I know that, you know, after the, the first semester that I taught, like my students were just so dismissive of this. And, you know, and it was really a struggle for me to, to, to get to them, to understand how to uh, teach this, this technique that I, you know, valued so much and to translate to them what that value would be for them. And they, they felt so removed that eventually what I, I realized is that for them, it was merely classroom exercises that, um, you know, didn't have any sort of kinesthetic relationship to what they were accustomed to in, in their previous dance training. So that um, in the second semester, it hit me, okay, so, you know, maybe the first month or so, like teaching the back exercises, the, the basics of a Cunningham class, and then thereafter, start actually making a dance on them in class to turn it into something performative so that, you know, they knew they didn't want to look bad in front of their peers and that they would work hard at it and, and also to try to find, you know, some connection to themselves within the work. And, um, you know, I, I would tell them all the time, look, um, uh, Merce is getting older. I don't know how much longer this company is going to last. Most of you will never, ever get into this company. But I, what I want you to take from this class is just the idea, uh, you know, forget coordinations, but this single thing that Merce was so focused about, there not being any fixed points in space that you know that wherever you are on the stage, you know where your hips are facing, and that is front. Wherever you are in space, and then, you know, the leg is going forward, side, back, but your hips are facing where they are, and that is your front. And you use that as a basis for just navigating where you are in space. And once you figure that out, you guys can, like, just go to auditions and even if it's not your style you'll have this one base from which to navigate what that style is and you'll be that much more ahead of the game is how i i thought about it i don't know that we should go on too much longer and there's no logical way to to end this conversation <laughs> but does anyone have any last thoughts that they want to share before we close up i just want to thank you and jack for inviting us to have this conversation because it is something that I've wanted to do for a long time. And I think it hasn't happened for whatever reasons, circumstantial reasons, but I, you know, and I never thought it would be public, but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> and there's always like more to say and more to do. Um, so I hope that, I don't know. Yeah. That's all I want to say. Well, I mean, we, we can't thank you enough for, for, for letting us be the platform for this conversation. And hopefully 
this oral history will act as something for young people who have questions and who would like some insight. Gus, you were saying? No, I was just going to say, I, I second what Rashawn said. Uh, it's very important to hear this discussion and to carry the ideas from it forward. And to see like that there's multiple perspectives on a thing, you know, because there are some clear overlaps with with us, but there's also some differences in how we think about it. And I think that that's important. That's the most important thing, actually. Well, um, you know, so I was I was talking about Mark Mann and and how, you know, he, he was let go. And I realized, in, in, you know, in, in that moment in time that, yeah, hmm, yeah, I'm really lonely in this company um, for for another person of color. I, I really am. I, you know, my heart ached for it. And then, of course, you know, I, I moved past it because, you know, the work is so demanding. That's what you you focused on. Um, but I think the other thing, too, you know, Rashawn was sort of alluding to this, you know, due to access and, and whatever, like, you know, I felt the recognition from the downtown black dancers, but never from the uptown ones while I was dancing in the company. That also was really painful for me when I realized that. Wow. But, you know, we've spoken a lot um, tonight or today about the, uh, the night of a hundred solos. And I will say in that moment, I, you know, I saw both the dress rehearsal and the actual performance at BAM. And, and really, it was the moment, you know, when, you, when you're watching it, you know, it's solos. And like, you know, one, two, three, four, the most people on stage. And yeah, you'd see a black body. But for me, when I first saw it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's Jennifer Weaver's solo and blah, blah, blah. Oh, Trish Lent did that. Oh, Alan Good did that. Like, you know, I'm playing, yeah, you know, a game of name that dance. <laughs> Until 433, which for those in the audience who don't know, 433 is the dance that Merce choreographed. Um, you know, it's the, the response to John Cage's, his musical and, and life partner's most famous musical composition, which is four minutes and 33 seconds of silence broken down into three movements of silence. So Merce made a dance, four minutes and 33 seconds of stillness, broken down into three movements of stillness, meaning that you uh, hit one position for, let's say, one minute and 12 seconds, and then another, you know, and it rounds out to 433. That's the dance. But, you know, the night of 100 solos, the entire company saved one dancer, all perform um, 433. So then you're like, wait a minute, they're all in stillness and you really can't see them. And I, I, I don't know what the number is. I want to say 10 black dancers were on that stage. And I'm sorry, I'm like, I'm really going to get emotional now, but like, <sighs> it was that moment of that, like, oh my God, I'm having my Mark Man moment of, I'm like, I'm really seeing myself for the first time in this work that I just love so much that I felt like I could never really share it beyond what I've shared with you, Gus and Rashawn and, and Ulysses. And I, I think it was the greatest gift of my life was to witness that. So... I'm sorry. No. Don't be Don't sorry. Apologize. 
<laughs> Michael, please. It was a powerful moment. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, I don't like having hope. <laughs> because, it just really like fucked me up a lot but um that the importance of the our human experience first and then everything else and so may things continue to change where people can mm-hmm. work in ways where they don't feel alone. Because I, I think there is something stronger in not feeling alone. Because it's also untrue. We're not. So I think it doesn't make sense. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't augur to me towards actually the richness of uh, reality, which is that we're not alone. And so what can we all be doing in our practices to, to help in that? Yeah. And, um, I really, uh, I'm glad that you felt, felt it, Michael, and also felt comfortable to share it here. Thanks for providing the platform. (laughs) Yeah, it's really our honor to have you guys. Completely our honor. Okay, you guys, we, we fully loves you and our listeners loves you. I love you all. Thank you so much. Love you so much. Love you all. Hopefully we can like hug each other soon. Yes. Thank you. Bye.